How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. Did uh, did you see that girl's boobs in the movie? I didn't. Did you, did you see? I got the made-for-TV version. Oh. <laughs> it's just cartoon bikinis drawn on it. <laughs> Can you imagine being the person who had to like try to put together TV a edit? TV edit of this movie? It's <laughs> like, what? I don't... There's no... The first half of the movie's gone, guys. I don't I know what say, else to do. They'd come in and be like, did you get that editing done? Yeah, yeah, I did. But hey, here's the thing. Uh, it's 10 minutes long. <laughs> is that with with the credits (laughs) and to cut out the entire first half an hour and the finale yeah this is uh, i don't the finale of this movie is literally a double penetration (laughs) oh god well welcome to cinema shock well well hello and welcome to cinema shock this is a podcast dedicated to exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films i am one of your hosts gary horde Hey, I'm co-host Justin Bishop. Joining us today, as always, is double penetration expert himself, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Welcome oh, thanks. to the show, Todd. Thanks so much, guys. They, they it's I, From now on, let's just go ahead and say, Todd, double penetration Davis. Greatest DP since Dean Cundy, that son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> the D and DP uh, did it again. Does- the D and DP does stand for Davis. A lot of people don't realize that. <laughs> Davis penetration. Davis penetration. <laughs> well, we've got a new series we're working on this week, fellas. I'm excited about it. This is a short series. It's only three, uh, three episodes long. Uh, it's a it's a trilogy, but it's also this series is also kind of a sequel to our previous series on Toby Hooper, and also a semi sequel to our most recent series on Dan O'Bannon, which is kind of fun. This was called The Death of Toby Hooper. It's I was, not. We're not getting that far into the, the Toby Hooper. I, I don't was, think we're going to talk semi, about... I was semi during most of this movie. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Patrick Stewart, good God almighty. Oh, with a little bit of hair on the side? Oh, oh, oh. the look. horizontal mohawk? Yes, sir. Thank <laughs> you. But, you, you know, Gary, I don't know that... W- unless we have, like, a lot of like request or de- high demand for it. I don't know that we'll get into the latter career of Toby Hooper, but Hey, if the people speak up and the people want a third Toby Hooper series, where we talk about some of those later films, maybe we'll do it. But some of those are honestly a little, a little rough. There are a couple gems here and there. I think his toolbox murders uh, remake is pretty good. I, I remember liking the mangler when I was 15, but I have not seen it, seen it since then. So I, I don't know. Yeah. When uh, I said that, the death of Toby Hooper, I meant his career mainly. This um, is, kind of, yeah, <laughs> that is kind of what we're doing here. Uh, the last real hurrah for Toby Hooper before he was kind of relegated to the, the made for video bargain bin, unfortunately. Oh, <laughs> and, this is like his and last major the, the beginning of the end. 
starts with the movie we're talking about this week <laughs> to be honest <laughs> not in terms of quality because i personally really like all three of the movies we're talking about on this series but as far as you know financial and critical success these were not not uh the shining examples of of uh, toby hooper's career <laughs> so let's get into it you ready i'm i was Are you guys having fun are you guys having fun tonight i'm so ready oh my god am I we ready? haven't really done anything i mean we oh. laughed about double penetration i mean as far as that goes i suppose i'm having a good time this seems yeah. fun it seems fun I, <laughs> what just, double penetration i'm always having a good time when i see the two of you which it doesn't oh, happen that's... as often as it used to because of the world but <laughs> yeah but we're all vaxxed up now and the cdc says we can we can lick each other's faces now oh, oh thank oh. god it's, yeah. it's time oh, before, before tongue... you know it we might be recording this thing in person again i've it's... almost i've almost completely lost my taste for doorknobs so I'm, I need to get back out there. My tongue will be in all of your holes. <laughs> wow. Even the nostrils. Yeah. Even all of them. Just all of them. I mean, you got to just take advantage. You, you learn a new, you, I've got a new lease on life. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So at the conclusion of our series, uh, the tragedy of Toby Hooper that we just alluded to, we covered the director's infamous big budget studio horror film, Poltergeist. Uh, great episode. It was a, yeah, it's a great story behind that movie. I think you know the movie was a big success, but as we discussed in that episode, the controversy and the bad press surrounding it, fueled by speculation that that film's producer Steven Spielberg directed much of the film, really hurt Hooper's reputation and his career. Mm. And as a result, Toby Hooper had a hard time finding a follow-up to that film, at least one that he cared to be a part of. As we discussed last week. Toby Hooper was for a time attached to Return of the Living Dead. Uh, and in 1983, Hooper was ready to shoot the film, but it took a while for financing to come together on the film. And here's what Dan O'Bannon, the screenwriter and eventual director of The Return of the Living Dead, had to say about Hooper's participation. This is from the October 1985 issue of Cine Fantastique magazine. Quote, I scripted it more or less the way Toby Hooper wanted it. He came up with some cute ideas, and I did too, but it was mainly geared towards his tastes. Then the backers, Hemdell, began having money problems because they were raising the cash on foreign distribution sales, and it was taking ages. So Toby Hooper, you know, instead of waiting to direct a film that may or may not ever even happen, moved on. He, he left the film. He left, you know, O'Bannon ended up, of course, directing the film once it secured financing, but this left Hooper... The availability to direct something else, another project, uh, one that happened to be actually another film scripted by Dan O'Bannon. That's the film that we're talking about today, which is 1985's Life Force. They watched. They waited. Now their time has come. Out of the depths of space, the ultimate terror. Moving, searching, destroying. From body to body, from life to life, from man to woman. Changing, growing, burning for our life force. From the director of Poltergeist, from the special effects creator of Star Trek, the motion picture, life force. In the blink of an eye, the terror begins. When you talk about, uh, you know, what exactly he was free to do in terms of choices and scheduling. It makes me wonder like 
how many how many irons do you keep in the fire because it seems like there's directors who you know have gosh like two or three things come out in a year or then you got guys like uh well chris nolan who is adamant about seeing a project through from pre all the way through post-production and the premiere before touching another project yeah i think it has something i think it has a lot to do with just the director's personality maybe yeah or or how they like to work how they prefer to work you know you'll have steven spielberg for example on one extreme end of that spectrum he'll be filming a movie it goes into post-production he's already in pre-production on another movie while he's in post-production on one movie you know he's finishing up the effects on jurassic park and he's shooting schindler's list Right. And, but, but then on the other end of the spectrum, yeah, you've got someone like Chris Nolan who takes it a little more slowly and a little more methodically. I think most directors are probably somewhere in between, you know, Mm. they might be developing projects uh, from at different stages. I, I, Guillermo del Toro comes to mind Mm. because he's always got these, he's just, he's like an idea guy. He's always got like ideas and in mind of projects he'd like to work on. And maybe they're at various stages of actually existing oh, yeah. uh, but a lot of times those don't ever come to fruition and i think it also probably works very differently for maybe a director who is also a writer like a quentin tarantino type sure you know, who yeah well i mean there's so many directors that have so many like yeah they're directing but they're focused on one particular thing be it cinematography yeah. the script the acting you know you you hear about those yeah an actor an actor's director trying to figure out like all that stuff. Oof. Well, it's interesting yeah, I mean, too. Like, I mean, even with this one to hear some of my notes today come from Toby Hooper's commentary on the Shout Factory Blu-ray and to hear him talk about with Dan O'Bannon, for instance, like when he left Returning of the Living Dead and got hired on here, he talks about Dan O'Bannon, that Dan O'Bannon was also writing this script with him. Dan O'Bannon was writing the script, don't get me wrong, but like Toby would say, they were tossing notes back and forth to each other during production of this movie the entire time like it was also being written and this also would have been hooper had just left the making of return of the living dead so there's a lot of overlap i guess is where i'm going yeah yeah so to rewind a little bit though in the summer of 1983 a couple of movie moguls by the name of manahem golan and yoram globus who described themselves as the world's leading purveyors of B-movies. That's a self-description by these guys. Uh, they I think that name is actually, course. to hear people say it, they always go like, Machim Golan. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I don't speak I, I Yiddish, and I apologize <laughs> if I mispronounced it. <laughs> I, I, wouldn't I will even, probably I only refer know. to them by their last names for the rest of the episode anyway. There you go. So that I don't have to try to stumble over I'm that. not Golan, sure if I'm Golan. being anti-Semitic by even trying. So I, I don't, don't think... You are. I think you're you're trying to pronounce someone's name correctly. Right. <laughs> Golan and Globus does kind of sound like a bluegrass duo. <laughs> Doesn't that, it? Israeli they have a bluegrass, Israeli bluegrass yeah. duo. I would see that show. It's awesome. <laughs> so these guys they, they were Canon and D. <laughs> Stupid. I, I hate myself that I did that. <laughs> but, uh, so to. these guys. They were preparing to, in the summer of 1983, they're preparing to finance a big-budget adaptation of a 1976 sci-fi horror novel called The Space Vampires, written by prolific author by the name of Colin Wilson. I say prolific. This was his 51st novel that was published. Oh, so the, guy, the guy was churning them out. And they were like trash paperback, you know, oh, okay. uh, pulp novels. Not Probably according more. to Mama Wilson. <laughs> well, Mama. <laughs> Mama Wilson was not the strictest critic. 
<laughs> so if you're a fan of B-movies, especially those from the 1980s, then the names of Golan and Globus might sound familiar to you. Uh, if they don't, then surely the name of their production company does. They were the head honchos of Canon Films, having purchased the Fledgling Company back in 1979, or at least uh, purchased a, a ruling stake in it. That was the Canon and D joke. See, that's what I was Yeah, doing thanks, there. Gary. We got it. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you just joining uh, Golan and Globus these were two Israeli cousins who had begun their career in the early 1960s and they, they had a business model where they would buy these bottom of the barrel scripts put them into production often with very low budgets at least in the early days and you know make a pretty penny off of it and these early successes by, by doing this allowed them to start putting bigger and bigger budgets behind their films but even when they started doing that, they never really lost that B-movie spirit. Now, I should say that Canon Films kind of, they, they were known for doing action movies and B-movies, but they also did art films as well, like stuff that would play in art house cinemas. But obviously the, it was the, the B-movies and the action movies that they were doing that were kind of making them all the money. When you think of 80s B-movies and action movies, there's a very good chance that at least some of those films that you're thinking about are Canon Films films by the Canon Group. These are the guys that are responsible for the Death Wish sequels that got more and more ridiculous as they went. Uh, the Chuck Norris action movies. I mean, these guys basically made Chuck Norris an action star with oh, wow. movies like The Delta Force, Missing in Action, and Invasion USA. Uh, these guys are the guys who did the Ninja Trilogy. They, they did American Ninja. Uh, they also did musicals and comedies, movies like Breakin' and The Last American Virgin. So, you know, movies that were very, very popular for a handful of years in the 1980s. Didn't you I go feel like on you... some weird missing in action binge not too long ago or something? I watched the first one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which was filmed as the second one. I don't know. Maybe we'll do a missing in action. <laughs> I always liked maybe. Invasion USA. I saw that a ton of times as a kid. Yeah. Well, I missing feel like in they action could do was it, weird because yeah. they filmed the two back to back and then they realized the second one was better. So they released it first. Then they released the second one. It's called like missing in action back to the beginning or something. And it's like made as like a prequel because uh. it was actually filmed first really weird but the, no. the first one is better i do feel like they could do a version of the producers about these guys yeah i think it would, it would be, be entertaining. A if you yeah, want to know more about canon films i'll say there's a really great documentary about it uh called electric boogaloo the wild story of canon films or something along those lines Fine. Uh, it's a it's a really really great documentary it's it's by the same director that did not quite hollywood which is a great documentary about uh, exploitation movies, uh, but check that out. Uh, Electric Boogaloo, really, really entertaining documentary about their entire career, the kind of the rise and fall of Canon Films. Uh, but they actually have a there's a pretty you know sizable chunk of that film of that documentary that covers Life Force. Oh, nice. Let's not forget Michael Dudikoff. How could we? <laughs> the American. They also Ninja kind himself. of made his career. Yeah. What, as, what as much as he has a career. As as he had a career. <laughs> <laughs> so by the mid-1980s, these guys, they were at their peak, and they were ready to tackle big concept stories like the space vampires, and they knew exactly who they wanted to helmet. They wanted the guy behind the one, two, three punch of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Salem's Lot, and Poltergeist. They wanted Toby Hooper, and they approached him, and basically they had a meeting with Toby Hooper, and they had a, a paperback copy of the space vampires, 
slid it across the desk and they're like, this is your next movie. <laughs> so that's kind of how the meeting went. Nice. And uh, they quickly offered Hooper a three picture deal with Canon films, uh, an arrangement that as we'll discuss over the course of the series would prove to have a major effect on Hooper's career going forward. Now, according to Joe Bob Briggs's obituary, he wrote for Toby Hooper. He, he mentions in there as, as though the three picture deal was with the understanding that the third film you know, this there were you would, he would get Texas two Chainsaw pet projects too. or projects he was super interested yeah. in, and then it would be Texas Chainsaw sequel. Right. Yeah. And I, I've read that same information as well. I um I couldn't find any other information other than the article you're referring to, Gary, but Joe Bob's uh Joe Bob's intel is usually pretty spot on. So I, I think that's pretty probably pretty accurate. Although the exposition heavy novel and the final film differ quite a bit, especially in the second half. Uh, Hooper saw a lot of potential in the space vampires. He had grown up as a fan of the British Quartermass TV series from the 50s and 60s, which is about this, you know, this explorer who has a lot of uh, interactions with uh, UFO, uh, you know, aliens and things like that. And he saw this film or this novel as a way to show uh, homage to those productions that he loved so much as a kid. And at the same time, it looked like the space vampires, you know, if you read the concept and read the script, this is going to be a big production filled with special effects and complex set pieces, which would make it kind of a perfect follow-up to Poltergeist. Hooper says what he liked about the book was that he he loved, it had to do with relationships between men and women and how the dominance can turn on a dime. So he definitely felt like there was some like depth there to plunge into, but Overall, everything I've read, Hooper has or had nice things to say about canon all the way around. Basically, that they're showmen, they love movies. When he describes meeting and everything I read for this one, um, he says, as far as he knows, it was all started by this Israeli filmmaker, uh, Boaz Davidson, who, if I'm not mistaken, like did a lot of the Delta Force stuff for them. And uh, he, he was, so he was in with the canon guys, and he says, that Boaz was talking to Golan and said, you got to meet this guy. You'll love him. He's, he's a crazy guy, but he like in a good filmmaker kind of way. And uh, so he said, it set up the meeting. And he said that literally the meeting was like, Justin said, he said that uh, they were sitting at a desk. Golan pushes the novel over to him and says, you go read this and do this movie. And Hooper was like, okay. And like took the book and started to walk out. And he said, as he was leaving, Golan said, Hey, Toby. And Toby turned around and uh, Golan was like, I mean it we're doing this movie. That was really it. He said it was that simple with Canon. You bypass all the other bullshit. They legit flew him to Palm Springs. He sat out on the beach. He read the novel. By the time he'd finished the weekend, his agents had negotiated the deal. Yeah. These guys, they would just kind of throw money at things, which, which in the long run uh, did not uh, contribute to their longevity, <laughs> but they, uh, the, the story of Canon films is really interesting. I mean, we could do a whole series. Hell, you could do an entire podcast just on Canon films. They produced hundreds of films. I mean, even their un, unfilmed or unmade things have great stories. Like they, they had the rights to Spider-Man in the 1980s. Uh, nice. They paid Marvel like a quarter million dollars for the rights to do a Spider-Man movie. Uh, they had the rights for like five years and then they, they never got it off the ground. So the rights, you know, went back to Marvel, which is how... The Sam Raimi ended up making the movie later on. Was there a but, yeah? So they've got a great story. Canon, was there a canon Spider-Man script out there? I have no idea. Oh. I haven't. I haven't looked into it that far. All right. <laughs> so I'm not really sure. I'll be judging. That so, now. but I bet it would have been shitty. Probably. Yes. <laughs> 
So they've got Toby Hooper on board, and now comes the task of adapting the novel to fit the screen. Uh, Dan O'Bannon and Don Jacoby, who had collaborated on Blue Thunder, which we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago, they were brought on to write the screenplay. But the novel's futuristic setting, which was at the end of the, it was set at the end of the 21st century, way in the future, that proved to be kind of a stumbling block for them. Uh, Hooper uh, specifically found it too distanced, uh, like too remote for a horror film or a thriller. In essence, he found that it would be hard for audiences to put themselves in the shoes of the protagonists, which is something that is vital for a horror film to be effective. You have to be able to kind of relate to the protagonist. So instead, Hooper made the decision to set the film in 1986, which was the actual year that Halley's Comet would return and fly, you know, do a close flyby to Earth. So this was something that was in the news at the time that this movie was coming out. And doing this gave the viewers an actual real-life future event to dwell on. No, it's a good way to go. It makes, yeah, me, think, it makes uh, me think of like 2012 when people were freaking out yeah. about that shit. That movie yeah, he said that there was a lot of uh, the stuff on the news at that time was like this, uh, it's a world-ending event. You know, like there was a lot of that going around. So it made sense to him. And he felt like they didn't have to model so much advanced tech, though. Know, he just thought being too sci-fi in this film wasn't appropriate, I think is how he put it. Since the dawn of man, comets have been seen as like omens for, for bad things happening. Hmm. So the fact that, you know, in this movie, it is not only an omen for bad things happening, but it actually brings the bad things to us. Like that's kind of a fun play on that, that concept, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. So they make this decision uh, to kind of set it in more modern times, more, you know, present day. And they were able to quickly get it together. Script came together and everything and came together pretty quickly and went into pre-production with a then pretty huge budget of $25 million and a crew of over 400 artists, including a 40 person prosthetics team. This is a big production. One of the biggest, if not the biggest production that Canon films had done so far, even, you know, 1980s, that, Sounds huge. The forty-person prosthetics. That's thing. massive for yeah. this time. Yeah, um, they they were like you said. I mean, they just kind of threw money at it. I mean, I mentioned earlier, but a lot of the script happened as production was happening. Um, he said, you know, just in and immediately he had already. This is the only person we've seen say this. He said he liked Dan. He knew Dan O'Bannon, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that was really it. He knew he wanted but him Dan's to write. Wife it. liked them. It seemed like <laughs> right. <laughs> she, so she had he nice immediately just he just called Dan O'Bannon and says, "I want to hire you to do this thing," and he did. And uh, he said they'd have the calls where they talk ideas back and forth or tweak things as Hooper wanted, but it was pretty simple. He he already had John Graysmark immediately signed on as the production design. So they just started work on that stuff. And he said a lot of the crew are actually came you know were people that had worked on like 2001 but you know going back to like what of his ideas um he, he he mentions in several interviews i saw that he in his mind he envisioned a 70 millimeter hammer film like he he loved the hammer movies also so that's that's what they were going for uh like with the ship he he was saying he when he would try to describe it he was like give me something really weird looking but like a dracula's castle in space and but like his other note would have been like definitely don't come close to giger because that would yeah. be sinful right now and he said so <laughs> he's like maybe we're going more of a i think he said a curvy escher painting nice. so and to put that that 25 million dollar budget in context this is 1984 or so when they're going into production 1982 2 years earlier star trek 2 the wrath of khan 11 million dollars Oh, wow. Yeah. 
So Jeez. that kind of gives you an idea of just how massive this production was yeah. uh, compared to other even genre films of the time. So to help him pull off this massive undertaking, Hooper was paired with cinematographer Alan Hume, who had begun his career working on Hammer horror movies. So it's funny you say that, Gary, that that yeah. was his inspiration. Like this guy, that's where he started his career. And he had actually most recently been the cinematographer on Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they did shoot this movie in 70 millimeter, which is insane to me to shoot a movie this because as we're going to talk about, the movie's fucking weird. And to, to, to shoot a movie like this on 70 millimeter is, I just love it. Like, that's an insane decision that would never happen today. And it just kind of thrills me that it exists. And that if if there were a repertory theater around where we live that had the capability of showing 70 millimeter film, you could see this movie projected in 70 millimeter somewhere. That would be amazing. So, I mean, just for my own, and maybe there's someone out there Standard's 35, right? Correct. So this means a negative 70 millimeter is a negative twice as big as a regular standard film, which means that you're getting twice as much detail and everything. Wow. That. So, so it's kind of, it's uh, closer to like IMAX format, which this was yes. way before IMAX. Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so another key player here was special effects man, John Dykstra, an Oscar winning legend in the effects field who had given us the effects in little movie called Star Wars. Uh, he'd also worked on Battlestar Galactica. He'd also done the effects for Star Trek, the motion picture. Uh, that's, like that's, John, two, that's two Star Trek. That's two Star Trek references. So far. And we're not, and we're not done yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, John Dykstra is like, he is like kind of the godfather of modern effects. Like this guy is like, I mean, just his work on Star Wars alone is absolutely legendary. Like he, he was breaking ground on that movie mm. left and right. And then in front of the camera... Hooper cast a fellow Texan by the name of Steve Railsback as Colonel Tom Carlson. Uh, Carlson had previously appeared in cult films like The Stuntman, uh, Turkey Shoot, and probably most famously as Charles Manson in Helter Skelter, a movie that he starred in alongside Marilyn Burns in one of her only other film credits outside of the Toby Hooper films. Oh, okay, cool. But just in a weird twist of things, that's how these things happen hooper says that railsback he liked railsback because of the stuntman that's what he was thinking of but he they knew each other because apparently hooper would come visit marilyn burns on the set of helter skelter railsback says that the hard thing for him was that after that role as manson he was offered every single killer you can imagine in every possible (laughs) adaptation constantly so he just felt like i gotta do something totally different than this or this is this is all i'm ever gonna be i'm gonna do is be a crazy guy turns out he plays a hero in this who is also comes across as a crazy guy <laughs> right <laughs> but he said he trusted toby like he he knew he knew him from there and and he knew he felt like he knew what he was doing and he loved the idea of experience of the location they were going to and all of this stuff so it just came together nicely i guess and much of the rest of the cast was comprised of veteran Brit- british actors like guys like peter firth uh frank finley although the frank finley role uh, was a role that was originally meant for Klaus Kinski. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with Klaus Kinski. He was a frequent collaborator of, uh, of Werner Herzog. And he is a genuine, insane person. He's a psycho. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that would have fundamentally changed the film, possibly for the better, to be honest. I think it would have been fun to watch. <laughs> nice. uh, you just want to see Morris. the experiment of him crossing paths with different people. Yeah, 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 <laughs> absolutely. And then, of course, Captain Jean-Luc Picard himself, well, at this point, future Captain Jean-Luc right. Picard himself, 
Sir Patrick Stewart. Oh, Even yeah. at one point, he's in a wheelchair. They like wheel him out. So I thought of Professor X too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> A pre-audition for that there was a guy and one of the crew i saw that just interesting uh, brian carroll was his name he was one of the people on the churchill uh and he was killed in a car accident like he had a bigger role and they had to cut it down in post-production and editing oh, wow. uh, uh so they like he, he ends up being more like an extra in the movie but i just thought that was a weird thing also wow. uh the two male vampires by the way isn't one, one of them billy idol's brother is no, one of them is Chris Jagger, who is Mick Chris Jagger. Mick, oh, but Billy Idol was supposed to be one. They of them. wanted Billy Idol for the other one. <laughs> they could so work it Chris out. Jagger being Mick Jagger's brother is one of them. Yeah. Okay. No. And then Billy Idol was going to be the other one. Yeah, Billy Idol was going to be the other one, but it didn't work out. But this is two weeks in a row where we have some reference to Mick Jagger too, because remember the score for for Return of the Living Dead was apparently written by the. Uh, uh, keyboardists for the yeah, and songs. also the, the the Billy Idol thing is not totally as random as it seems because he looks like a vampire. No, Toby Hooper directed a uh, Billy Idol music video. Yeah, uh, so this was before. Like, it's kind of it's kind of common now for film directors to direct music videos or for film directors to come from the world of music videos like they started out like someone like david fincher oh, sure. started out in music videos and moved into feature film directing just this week as we're recording this there was a music video from donovan that just came out that's directed by david lynch so this is more common now but at the time this was it was not common for a feature film director to direct music videos first of all music videos were very very new but yeah and uh, i think it was actually a 1984 1985 around the time of this movie's production uh, Toby Hooper directed the Billy Idol Dancing With Myself music video. Oh, wow. So that was kind of what he was doing in his in-between movies time. Where were we? We're talking about the cast, right? So if you're talking about the cast of this movie, probably the most memorable cast member of the film, especially for uh, 15-year-old boys or 39-year-old boys, uh, is Matilda May as the alien sp- space girl. But she's just credited as a space girl. Uh, did you guys notice Matilda May's performance which, in this film? Which one was she again? She's the other, she's not, there's two guy vampires mm. and then there's one lady vampire who hangs out occasionally. Can, you remember her? Can you describe her? There's, not, <laughs> there's a couple of details that make her stand out, but like other, if you don't happen to notice those, you will mm. never. <laughs> so Matilda May, only 20 years old at the time of filming this. This was her first real movie role. Uh, she had a couple of like very, very small roles before this. This is the first real movie role, although she would go on to have a pretty long, successful career, although her career was primarily in films produced in her native France. Uh, I think you're supposed to, uh, looking at our notes, I think uh, films are supposed to have quotes around that, Justin. <laughs> no, they're real movies. <laughs> she did. She yeah. made real movies. What's got Harvey Keitel in it? <laughs> she was an actual actor. She was also in uh, The Jackal with... Uh, with Richard Gere and 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 uh, Bruce, Willis. Bruce Willis. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, wow. Like the late nineties. Yeah, ninety yeah, seven. She oh, plays wow. one of their wives. I can't remember because I haven't seen that movie since like ninety seven. Oh, yeah, she's in okay. that. Nice, nice. Yeah, but but most of her movies were French. Uh, and it, as you may have noticed, if you if you've watched this film, uh, one one detail that may have stood out to you is that uh, Matilda May appears fully nude for a large chunk of the film's runtime. Oh, Matilda uh, May. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. All that's right, her. That's the right, one. That's right, the one you're right. thinking of. Okay. So, uh, but this is Toby Hooper, I think, once again, pushing the envelope for what's acceptable in a mainstream movie. Uh, 
but but it's funny if you listen to Huber talk about this, he tries to downplay it. He tries to downplay the nudity in Life Force. He kind of views it the same way he views the violence in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Here's a quote from him from Cinefantastic magazine where where they asked him about this. Uh, there is nudity, but there isn't a lot of nudity. The nudity was handled in the same way as the blood and gore we had in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Man, most of it is in the mind's eye. It's there. There are also shadows in motion that act as clothing, so you think you see much more than you do. There was no way around the nudity. We find humanoids in space, and I couldn't rationalize finding them clothed. I just want to call bullshit, first of all. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> first of all, the shadows in motion as acting as clothing is like, we're really reaching there, Tobe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You see more than you think you do. No, you definitely see plenty of nudity. And say what you will, don't expect to have naked people running around through a movie and it not become a topic of conversation. Yeah, maybe, one also, day, maybe one day we'll also, get there. You have to <laughs> notice you don't see you don't see any of the, the dude aliens with their dork hanging out. You know, there's no, that was a heavy metal reference, by the yep. way. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, you shot this thing I, in 70 millimeter. I can practically count the pores in her areola. Okay. Like, yeah, don't, yeah. <laughs> don't play like it's something it's not, Toby. Uh, Toby Hooper also, on, I think it's on the commentary to this. He talks about how they had her, much like they did with, with Linnea Quigley in Return of the Living Dead, they had her shave. And then they're like, oh, no, we can't do this. Like, now you can see even more. So Toby Hooper, I think is, and I didn't write this down, but I think his quote is something like, so we had her, we, we asked her to grow her little bikini thing back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Meaning yeah. her pubes, I guess. Yeah, that was it. Uh, they, they had her wax, and then, yeah, the producers and stuff were like, no, now she's, I think the quote was too nude. Like yeah, you see her, like, now we just see her labia. Yeah. Um, and this is all, by the way, not to say I don't think Matilda May is incredible because I do in many ways, obviously. But uh, this is a woman who was not a trained actress. She was actually a ballet dancer and had done that her whole life until an agent found her and thought she could make it in acting. And then she thought respectfully that you don't just become an actor. She thought it would take like years to learn how to be an actor and uh, but then all of a sudden she's like getting cast. Like, I mean, she got cast in those, like we said, two like French movies. Uh, one was like Dream One, I think. I think that's the one with Harvey Keitel. But anyway, she says she gets the call from her agent telling her she has to run to London for this movie uh, because it could be a really huge deal. So she she leaves. And uh, there, there's lots of stories about how she got the role by being one of the only women who was willing to do all of the nudity and that's partially true, but she wasn't like immediately on board for that. As soon as she read that part, she talks about calling her agent and crying being like, they want me naked all the time. I can't do this. And the agent finally convinced her saying, this isn't like it's an erotic film. This is a big science fiction movie. So it'll be different. It won't be erotic. So she thinks that that, partially had something to do with it that she wasn't trying to be erotic with her body she was trying to be like stone cold and turns uh, out when you just, look like that and walk around naked for the entire film mm -hmm. uh, it turns out to be erotic anyway yeah yeah <laughs> they uh but they talk about even hooper gives her something like maybe the dancing helped her with her like making her a little off in the way she moves and and yeah. that sort I mean, of that thing makes sense. a lot of dancers you know can turn and will will a lot of movies will hire dancers to do roles that are 
very physical or often like playing aliens and things like that, you know, cause they, they can do bizarre movements. Like we talked about last week, the guy who played tar man was a dancer. Oh because yeah. They, he could do these weird dance like movements that don't feel quite human. Right. Um, Hooper says it was probably his 50th screen test that he got to her. And uh, he just immediately loved her. Duh. Uh, yeah. but you know, they, as you do, yeah, <laughs> he said they took all the proper modesty precautions and all the actors were very protective of her. Rousebeck says that 100% there was no BS allowed on set with her when it came with her being nude. Uh, if anybody, if I mean, they you gotta remember, a, she's not only an inexperienced actor, she's 20 years old. Yeah. She's and, very young. And for her, the other strange part is she didn't even speak English. So yeah. <laughs> here and in her other role, uh, she was just. Uh, anytime she spoke English, she was learning lines phonetically. So she was just trying to pick up what people said. Um, mm. So for her, she talks about this was the first time away from her family for an extended period of time. And she was entirely alone, didn't speak the language. I can't even imagine how that was. But she said what warmed her up is one day, she doesn't even know how they found out, I guess maybe on her file or something, but they found out it was her birthday and the cr- whole crew brought her cake and stuff and saying happy birthday is so she felt like she was finally with people she could trust that's nice um but she describes uh toby as very introverted but elegant and nice sounds about right yeah (laughs) she said her sensibilities despised his texas accent so uh because she was she was learning english while she did this so she was drawn to frank finley uh because uh she called uh his english uh his his music is how she described it. He had the proper stage trained actor. She said by the time she got back home, she had learned a lot of English during the making of this film. And she had picked up an English accent and somehow had also gotten a Cockney style to it. So (laughs) her family's like, you know, being all French and like, Oh, my love. How are you? And she's just like, I'm good governor. How are you? It sounded like Dick Van Dyke from uh, from Mary Poppins. <laughs> but yeah, that 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 waxing thing, that's not unlike uh yeah, like we said, the Linnea Quigley thing or Linnea Quigley like uh had to grow out some pubes or well she had to get up. Well she ended up, up, I guess. Yeah, put on a pro- uh, I, I thought uh, that was what, just what interesting. privacy prosthetic. Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking it was interesting because I'm like, wow, 85 was a big year in terms of studios finding their footing with vagina on film. <laughs> or hiding vagina on film (laughs) right regressive regressive let's discuss fellas (laughs) so shooting under the name space vampires the film was shot at elstree studios in england where it stretched over four giant sound stages beginning in february of 1984 the shoot lasted six months like i said this was huge this is a long shoot a huge massive production uh, it took up over th- there there were over three dozen sets created specifically for the film and some of these set sets were like truly massive probably the biggest was the full destruction of a london street you know towards the end of the film uh, a scene that was so big that it reportedly took an entire month to shoot other complex scenes uh, complex to shoot included creating a weightless environment on the alien spaceship and on the space shuttle of the Churchill. Toby Hooper tells stories of people, you know, puking during that scene uh, because they were on wires floating, being flipped around all day. Um, yeah. I mean, they were the astronauts. Like it was done by um, 
the same people who did uh, Richard Donner Superman. Um, yeah. As far as all those scenes go. But yeah, they were legitimately like dangling like 50 feet in the air. Halifax says like if you wiggled wrong and somebody started to um, pendulum, then it set off a chain reaction and everybody would start shaking. And then oh, no. uh, everybody started barfing and they would throw up inside their helmets. And Halifax oh, no. said they would throw got- up. They'd lower them. They'd get down. He'd take off his helmet. They'd clean up the helmet. And he'd have to get himself together and like, all right, let's do it again. <laughs> and so they have to go back up. Toby <laughs> Hooper's got a really bad, bad luck with people like just puking all over each other. Remember the fun house? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's, that's funny you say that. Yeah, just uh, vomit from above. He's got a, he's got a thing for that. <laughs> wait, so John Dykstra's wait a minute, company. Wait a minute. Was that his goal the entire time? It probably yeah. was. That's Maybe that's thing. his kink. Let's not kink shame. Not gonna do it. Okay. Hey, All right. That's your thing. But, that's fine. But don't subject other people to it if they're not into it. Yeah, there, there that's a go. good point. Exactly. It's all uh, about anyway. Let's get on. The let's actors were being paid. <laughs> the the fun house, it was like extras that accidentally got left on a ride. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. These guys signed up for it. <laughs> Side fun fact: the Churchill was named after Winston Churchill. Wait a minute. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> Just uh, wanted to throw that in there for anybody who wow. missed that. Did you oh read that on God. the IMDb trivia? Trivia. I section? really did read that. <laughs> all, there's all kinds of connections and layers. <laughs> so John Dykstra's company was in charge of creating uh, these effects and others, including the laser wisps that act as a kind of human life force being released. It's a really cool effect, I think, that they created for that. Uh, and, and the the effects, especially that one, they do bring to mind it to me Poltergeist. With the blue light it and all that, like, like it, it feels yeah. very like I feel like Toby Hooper took took some pointers and took some ideas from his work with Spielberg. You know, I feel like he took some of that to heart and and utilizes some of it here as well. Yeah, you, know, you they, gotta learn and grow and get yourself to that higher level. Absolutely. They had a uh, Elstree Studios, which is like stage six for Star Wars. Uh, which yeah, Elstree is, is, is enormous. Yeah, they had that was one of their stages. They were like bouncing all over the place, but they had the Bond stage. Like a lot of it was done there uh, that we've talked about before because this was during the filming of Return to Oz and Legend. And remember in Legend, we talked about the fire that broke out on the Bond stage and burned up a whole bunch of shit. They were part of yep. that. They were there wow. during that time uh, filming this movie. So um, they, they filmed part of it at Pinewood as well? Maybe maybe it was Pinewood. Yeah. yeah well, no, is it? Is Pinewood Pine the one in LA? Pinewood's in in, uh, in England. England. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, it's the one in England. It's like in uh, I forget. It starts with a B. Something in. London. I mean, there is a Pinewood in Atlanta as well, but I don't think they filmed James Bond there. Uh, no, they they filmed Pine. They filmed uh, James James Bond at Pinewood Studios. Uh, specifically, I think a lot of it was uh, the shuttle. Um, the interior of the shuttle, or like stuff in the shuttle, was filmed in like where the Overlook lobby was filmed. Oh, which cool. was uh which all burned up like in that fire yeah. that's that's wild so uh so it was i i think elstree maybe was their their main studio that they filmed at that maybe and then maybe some of the bigger stuff like that they, they've had to film at pinewood i'm not sure they um i know specifically too they talked about uh in the commentary like uh, all the stuff with stewart uh with the you know that office and everything like those interiors what wasn't like a well most of it i think was a set but um, that was uh, where like Indiana Jones was shot. Like he said, like one of the, he pointed out one of the spots was like specifically where the, or, or like in Raiders, I mean, where like the ball 
is like rolling after Indy. He's like, oh, this, wow. this is like, he was like, that happened right there. And uh, I like pointed that out, but wow. it was kind of interesting. So the filming by pretty much all accounts was very smooth. Uh, no big issues other than, you know, act- actors puking on each other. Uh, and Hooper's cast was never shy about really seeing Hooper's praises as their director. They really liked him, uh, which you'd hope would help settle some of the previous rumors about his directing once and for all. Uh, Steve Railsback, in an interview with Starlog magazine, said this. This film will prove that Toby's a talented director who has unfairly taken some bum raps. Life Force will show people that he was the one who directed Poltergeist and that he is a filmmaker to be reckoned with. So, you know, even the actors on this, they're like, we got to help Toby Hooper clear his name, I guess. Sad that that doesn't really do that for him. <laughs> but it's, it uh, it's, it's maybe nice if that this film had done. Maybe if this film had been more successful, it would have. I don't know. A lot of the actors, uh, though, when you do watch like, uh, I don't know, interviews with them and that sort of thing, you definitely get the feeling like they all had a great time on this one. Like nobody's yeah. complaining about it. They all seem to love Hooper and yeah. Um, are, are you know like i know at least and they, you know i guess they're paid to be there but even in the shout factory release and stuff a lot of them are like we're glad this is finally getting a release and getting recognized and yada 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 and so and a few years later after the a few years after the film was released uh patrick stewart he's being interviewed about his recent hire as the new captain of the enterprise and he begins talking in these interviews about some of the prominent directors that he'd had a chance to work with in the past people like David Lynch and John Borman, and of course, Toby Hooper. And he said of, of Toby Hooper, he said, quote, of all the movies we've been discussing, Toby Hooper was the director to whom I got the closest. I liked him very much and I admired his work. As compared to my experience with David Lynch and John Borman, Toby was much more accessible. Toby's an interesting man, very enthusiastic, very much a presence on the set. Life Force was one of the best experiences I've had as an actor. Steve Ralsbeck was his first on-screen kiss. I saw that in a David Letterman interview. Like, first, <laughs> like your first, first on- like ever? Yeah, not like not, like, not, that's not like probably not on stage, but like on screen, yeah, on like screen. on the big screen. I guess was uh, Steve Ralsbeck. That's uh, really funny. <laughs> his first on-screen kiss. They're like, "Who's your first kiss?" He's like, "Oh, Steve Ralsbeck." Um, <laughs> Toby gives him a lot of credit, like you know, because because they bring that up in the commentary. Uh, that it's Tim Sullivan, I think he's interviewing, but he's he's like you know, Patrick Stewart's like praises you regularly like says you're one of his favorite directors he's ever worked I think with he's and- said i think i mean i don't know how recently he said it but that that interview that i quoted was you know that's when he got hired as as picard which was three years after 87 yeah yeah, yeah so but he still said for years and years after that he would say that toby hooper was like his favorite director that he'd worked with he said uh toby hooper was like that makes me feel really great because they were like did you you ever think patrick stewart would be as big as he is now and he's like oh yeah yeah he's you could tell (laughs) like he just looks big (laughs) like he just uh but he said like all the the little details that like patrick stewart brought to it like uh he said he was like really humble about it, but like there's the scene where he's talking about like where's so and so, and he's like, oh, he's in confinement or something. And then he's like, the line was, he's been bad, but he's like Patrick Stewart like comes over and says, what if I said he's been naughty? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, please say that. Please yes. say he's been naughty. <laughs> it is a great line. Like he nailed yeah. it. <laughs> it's a really great line. I was, I remember so, like watching this with my wife and it got to that line. I was like, Oh, Picard. 
that <laughs> you, you rascal you <laughs> for anybody who's ever seen toby by the way in an interview on commentaries he is still the same way like he does not have he doesn't have a lot to say ever yeah. like he, he just like That's it's always they always have to have somebody on his commentaries who's like asking him questions throughout the film yeah and it's generally like a lot of it is like so I noticed this and this, and the characters would probably be thinking this, that this says this about that person and yada, yada, yada. And Toby's like, yeah, yeah, probably so. <laughs> like, I don't know. He just like, he doesn't, he does not elaborate. <laughs> so while the filming of the movie went, went pretty smooth, uh, the shit hit the fan pretty much as soon as principal production wrapped first the powers that be at Canon decided that the title space vampire sounded too exploitative and too low budget. Despite the fact that these guys had previously produced films with titles like Ninja three, the domination, the happy hooker goes to Hollywood and break into electric boogaloo. I was about to say like, what a time for Canon's balls to shrivel up. Like what, what just <laughs> happened here? Also is the happy hooker goes to Hollywood. Is there a series of like, the melancholy hooker goes to Hollywood. The no, uh, it's just the, the happy the, hooker going to eccentric. various cities. Yeah. Oh, it's the going happy to hooker cities. goes to Birmingham. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> the, the happy hooker goes to Cleveland is very depressing. Yeah. <laughs> no, maybe that's how it starts, and then by the end of it, Cleveland's Everyone's a different happy. city. She starts working Everyone's... at a steam factory. Uh, but so since I guess they since they had dropped twenty five million dollars on this movie, they felt a more appropriate title would be Life Force. So Life Force is not a terrible name, but it doesn't really tell you what the movie really is about. Like, a, like if I went to see a movie called The Space Vampires, I know exactly what the fuck I'm going to see, you know, and Toby Hooper wasn't a fan either. He felt it sounded too pretentious and he felt that it lacked the sense of fun that the title Space Vampires has. You know, Space Vampires is a great title. Yeah. yeah. And you probably wouldn't be like, what the fuck when you see giant bats when you're floating up to the, the space station yeah. or whatever? <laughs> I mean, I, I get that Life Force is one of those titles that's kind of, it was kind of in vogue at the time that like one word, you know, like Poltergeist, like Cocoon, you know, these movies that were coming out around this time that I guess that was kind of the hip thing at the time. But Deep I don't throat. know, Space... I'm just kidding. Well, that was a few years before this. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I think that's technically two words, Gary. Not the way I do it. I don't know what I'm going (laughs) for there. I think I did a joke for that. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, if if that wasn't enough, if the title change wasn't enough, Hooper's film, which ran originally 116 minutes, was cut three times at Canon without the director's approval, resulting in a shorter 99-minute runtime. Now, I have to imagine that the, the version you guys probably watched was probably the director's cut or the international cut, probably closer to two hours. Yeah. 116 minutes, 120 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it sounds about right. Yeah. I think that's pretty much the version that's out now. I think when this movie was released on DVD for the first time, which was in 2001, that's the version that came out. That's the version that's on the Scream Factory. And I, I think that's the only version on the Scream Factory Blu ray. I don't think they have the the cut down version, which is fine because obviously the longer version is Hooper's preferred. I was going to say, I feel like there is like an option for original theatrical cut or is something there on like the, that. Is it on the- but um, yeah, uh, John Grover, the editor, he says in, in one of the features that would they, they delivered the original version 
Golan and Globus thought it was a little bit long, but Grover even said, this is, but this works. And then the distributor said the picture was too long and then they wanted it. So they wanted to make sure it got shorter. Toby didn't want to make it shorter. Then Grover says all he knows he left because he had to work on, I think he did the labyrinth right after. And he said that they just called somebody else in and they slashed it up. Uh, I don't know. Toby makes it sound like in the commentary that he wasn't unaware that it was happening. Like that he, you know, kind of tried to help make sure it still made sense at least when they slashed it. But he didn't want Grover from Sesame Street. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. That's the one. Super Grover, actually. Okay. So weird that I was going to say that same thing. I was going to (laughs) be... Super Grover did it with his cape and his knight's helmet on. Mm! (laughs) (laughs) It's good content there, Todd. Thank you. Thank you! (laughs) (laughs) It's like, you know what time it is? And he pulls down that little visor. It's nighttime. (laughs) (laughs) So stupid. (laughs) So the film's trailer... Is she nude in this one, too? Grover wasn't ready. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. So the film's trailer was put in front of surefire hits like Rambo First Blood Part 2, but it didn't seem to matter. Audiences didn't seem to care, and very few people in 1985 bothered to see the movie. Uh, Although I have to speculate that maybe if it had had a title like Space Vampires, they'd have known what kind of movie they were getting into, and maybe more people would have turned out for it. You know. Hooper definitely believes that. I mean, he straight up says it a few times in things I saw that he different one sheet and call it space vampires. He's like, we'd be talking about something different. Yeah, the space the the or excuse me, the the one sheet is pretty lame. The uh which is just like a picture of the earth and then like maybe like an eye at the top, I yeah, think it looks or something. Like it's really generic. Mm-hmm. But then if you look at the international posters where they've got like the the pods that the aliens are in like flying through space with a naked woman strapped to the side of one of them like that's a i'd see that fucking movie you know yeah, like that great you could put that outside the regal yeah well maybe <laughs> just put a bikini on her or something i don't know yeah gonna blur those but, nips <laughs> anyway when life force was released on june 21st 1985 it opened at number four at the box office Losing to a competing sci-fi movie, which is Ron Howard's Cocoon, it earned just over $11 million at the box office in the U.S. Not opening weekend, it earned $11 million total in the U.S. Ooh, for $25, $25 million budget. Mm. And not helping matters, critics were also beating it up. It was not a popular movie among, like, audiences were ignoring it, and critics thought it sucked. Ooh. And uh, so this brings, of, of course to the topic of modern reviewers, Gary. And mm. if they still think it suck, and I don't mean professional reviewers. I don't mean people who, I don't mean Roger Ebert or anyone, you know, that gets paid to do this. I just mean people who bought the DVD on Amazon and decided to give their two cents worth on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it turns out that not unlike a vampire during the daytime, somebody needs a nap. That was pretty good. Yeah, nicely done. So here's Solitary Man 9105125. He says, no doubt about it, is the title of his review. This movie is the movie that killed the careers of Toby Hooper and Steve Rousback. That's his whole review. The career of Steve Rousback. The career of Steve (laughs) Rousback. Here's Magical Jay. He says, wait, that was the whole review? That was his entire review? Yeah, that was it. 
Oh, okay. He was just pointing out it killed the crew. Anyway. Toby Hooper is. Who's the next guy? Guy's Violent Jay? Uh, Magical Jay. Oh. Cousin. I was hoping it was an ICP. <laughs> the only reason to like this movie is Naked Girls. It's absolutely terrible at all things it does. If you've never seen Naked Girls, then watch this trash fest. In 1985, it might have made sense. I was six. I really don't know why people would rate this higher than the absolute minimum. It has space vampires. Vampires don't exist. So why do we keep forcing dumb concepts in movie books in real life? The only true vampires are corporations and governments. Fact. Anyway, if you're easily amused, this old ass movie might seem campy or, oh, it's good because no one likes it. And it has naked girls, full naked. Anyway, don't bite it's crap. So his, his argument against this movie is that it contains vampires, which don't vampires exist don't in real exist. Life. What movie does he only watch movies that could happen in real life? Because your yeah, I don't your choice of movies is, is severely <laughs> like cut down. Well, and, logic and is he, not always part of this. And did he call them? <laughs> did he call them movie books? <laughs> did he use the phrase movie books? Oh, well, no, it was forcing dub concepts in movie. Oh, he says movie books, real life. I think he meant to say movies, comma, comma? books, oh, real okay. life. Comma, yeah. Grammar's and comma, kids. Oh, There's no, listen not. to this one. This is Otherwise, Rob. Otherwise, you're going to get made fun of on a podcast. Oh, Robert DeSantis says, uh, part of it, Horizon, part Island of Terror, part total crap. That I mean, see, already, if you're saying total, like it feels like that's, the whole you know what i'm saying yeah yeah, so, yeah. you can't be part of yeah you yeah. can't be part, part of it horizon cool. part island of terror part total crap total waste of time if i had seen this at the cinema i'd be asleep in the first 10 minutes if i could i would give this cheap flick a negative 10 shame really because it just proves that steve railsback one of my favorite actors is only good at playing deranged villains seriously don't waste your time or money on this piece of dung yeah, What's your up. language, sir? <laughs> uh, caveat Ib Thor says, watchable if you are a vegetable. You're in a full body cast and the controller is not operational. I kept hoping the silhouette heads from MST3K would appear in the foreground and they would begin to roast this clunker minute by minute. Uh, Has there been an MST3K riff track for this? Did they do I that? don't know about riff tracks, but not an MST3K. Ugh. I, I did want to include this one just because it's Stanley Strangelove again. And I feel like he comes up. He, I always third find his reviews. <laughs> yeah. Um, he says, Life Force should be titled Life Farce. This is an absolutely terrible movie from one of the worst directors of all time, Toby Hooper. The plot, well, there is none. Hooper just throws in every plot device from every horror and sci-fi movie in a complete mess. Nothing makes sense at all. We have spaceships, which are the cheesiest ones I've ever seen in a film. Vampires, Walking Dead, Telepathy, Graveyards, an insane asylum, explosions, car wrecks, the military, stupid-looking aliens. All that he left out was werewolves, Frankenstein, the creature from the Black Lagoon, and the kitchen sink. What a schizophrenic mess this is. That was well, there's uh, probably a lot of other stuff he left out of the movie, but that life that life farce thing. Though. Oh man, that's good. So many. I feel that's like Stanley Strange Love uh, has been watching like marathoning Toby Hooper movies and hating all of them for some reason. Like, <laughs> why realized, do you continue to watch them if you hate them so much? Yeah, <laughs> and I realized that I went long with this one, but I do have like one other one where this guy was just like real upset about this because this was like all big letters and just just he just went out it's devastation bob 
and he says, Life Force is a late 80s sci-fi horror flick where in a joint space mission between the U.S. and Great Britain fly out to study Haley's comic, comic, Haley's comic, and find a giant spaceship full of dead vampires, one sexy naked chick, and two Patrick Swayze clones. Of course, they bring them back to Earth, and then the naked chick runs amok, turns half of London into crazed ravenous zombies, and it's up to our heroes and an SAS man and the lone-surviving astronaut to defeat her in a gothic cathedral before the vampire mothership gets to Earth and rains holy hell down upon us. That's the uh, recap. Now, most people, upon hearing that synopsis, might be like, hell's bells, I want to see me some of that movie. Well, friends, that couldn't be farther from the truth. At two hours, Life Force is a chore to sit through. While the key plot points delivered above do happen, some of them happen off screen, and they're reported to us by some bored British character actors. There's a lot of drab office settings where haggard-looking Brits and Steve Relsback sweat a lot and yell. The beginning is mildly engrossing with the spacemen checking out a giant vampire ship and the end where apparently a soundstage fills in for London, besieged by crazy zombies, picks up a little. Otherwise, there's just a whole lot of nothing in this movie. I checked the credits to see who edited it, but that would mean fast-forwarding the tape for half an hour to get to them. A lot of the time is spent on scholarly types going essentially, maybe these aliens are a source of the vampire myth. Yeah, great. Can we see some vampires maybe, please? Once the splendidly nude bloodsucker lady escapes the lab they bring her to, she pretty much disappears from the picture. We're told she possesses people, which probably saves a lot of money on special effects and pays for more film stock than they can drag the running time even longer. The acting and plot simply aren't engrossing enough to make you not mind the length and boredom of this picture. Maybe they should have called it Life Forced. Someone remake this one. Peace. <laughs> Peace. <laughs> I love that he talks wow. about fast forwarding the tape and he's on IMDB. So <laughs> that that's just a weird part of that oh, review. No. I found anyway, there are plenty of those. If you want to go check out more, lots of sites have lots of one-star reviews for life force. That one had no problem finding them. <laughs> <laughs> so the critics in 1985, were not fans of this movie. Obviously, as we have, witnessed modern internet reviewers are not fans of this movie you know who else was not a fan of this movie who's that colin wilson the guy who wrote the novel that the film is based on uh, who called it quote the worst film ever made derided the film for launching right into the action instead of building to it despite the fact that the first half of the film adheres pretty closely to the novel Uh, so like what he's criticizing is coming from his novel uh, as opposed to the second half, which has a bunch of zombies in it, which are definitely not in his book at all. And even John Dykstra, uh, the special effects uh, guy, he had criticisms, although his are a little more valid. He had worked long and hard on the film's optical effects only to have them ruined in his eyes by poor processing by the lab that handled them saying, quote, life force was probably the worst patch up job of timing in a movie I've ever seen. There was stuff we had worked on for a long time that looked came out looking awful because they didn't time it right. They put, paid good money for those effects, and it's wrong for them to be destroyed by somebody's lack of concern. Ooh. Honestly, it's kind of that is frustrating because the 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 stuff he's talking about those effects those optical effects at the beginning they do look a little clunky, like they look a little cheesy, like where you can see you can tell that it's an effect and we know that John Dykstra is better than that. Cause we've seen his work even previous to that, this, that 
turned out better, but it doesn't ruin the movie for me. I think it's actually kind of kind of charming. But I could see how, as someone who created that work, put a lot of time into it, that that would be kind of frustrating. But I do have to, you know, ask you guys because we haven't discussed it much. Like, you know, critics didn't like it. Modern reviews didn't like it. Even some of the people making the movie didn't seem to like it. What do you guys think? I dug uh, it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm in. It was uh, neither of you had seen this before. Is that is that correct? Yeah, this was the yeah this is the first this was the first viewing for me. I will be um, completely honest. Um, I did watch it a little tired. Uh, we had watched, you know, Friday night is you know pizza and, and TV night for me and the wife, and I feel you know so it was the last thing that we watched and we started it kind of late. Um, so I you know my eyes were getting a little heavy there towards the end, but honestly, like. This is really solid. I really enjoyed it. I think um, I would love to see this get picked up by like Shutter or someone and, you know, do some sort of, you know, mini series reboot. I think this would, it's a lot of fun. And I'd love to see this sort of, some of the aspects sort of played out and fleshed out a little bit more. I I, I had a blast with it. And yeah, I mean, some of the, some of the special effects are dated, but honestly, like hearing the premise it's you know vampires in space and the whole thing when i first saw that space shuttle the uh the churchill and it's going in at a weird angle with the solar with the solar yeah, yeah. out and everything i was just kind of like i was fascinated i was like it's a cool image oh, okay cool yeah, yeah i'm on board yeah this yeah. is great and uh yeah it didn't let up and you know of course me being the star trek guy i love patrick stewart you know he can do no wrong but yeah this was a lot of fun what do yeah. you think gary I am, um, honestly, I'm kind of ambivalent uh, with the whole thing. Like, I'm colored by loving Toby Hooper and caring about Toby Hooper like I know him now. (laughs) And uh, so there's part of that that I think affects my viewing of it. I think the movie is, by no means is it perfect. Um, I... I think that it's drawn out a little bit. Like I, I can see how it feels long to some people. Um, it just, you know, it's not my favorite of his by any means. And uh, the, I, I bought it on Blu-ray. I'm not going to regret buying it. Like I said, no, but I also, Blu-ray. I feel like, yeah, it's a, it's a really good Blu-ray. And I feel like I'm, I don't know. I feel like probably not unlike mama Hooper at this point. I'm like, that's my baby Toby. <laughs> <laughs> He's doing his best and uh but i i mean i i don't think it's a great movie i think it's okay like it it's just there's a lot of stuff that i do like in it there are things that i, I mean the concept and some of the effects and that sort of thing are cool i absolutely just to throw it out there and he seems like such a nice guy and everything I've seen him say. So I, I, I want to be clear about that, that this is not personal, but I absolutely hated uh, Steve Rallis back, back in this movie. He's I hate terrible. him. I hate him. <laughs> He's terrible. <laughs> like, and I say I, that as someone who genuinely loves this movie, but Steve Rallis back, he is, he is pretty awful. Yeah. I can't terrible. stand him. Like he takes me, he took me right out of the movie on multiple occasions. Like, it doesn't, I was just like, it doesn't like affect my viewing of it. Because I, I like so much other stuff, but there are some some moments like where he just is really goofy. Like he's just yeah, just, something about I hate him to say it, but he's just being a bad actor. I mean, like some of the moments that require him to do more than things that are out of his reach as a performer. You know, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I was he watching him, just like I, I kept thinking during the movie. 
and I've seen it a couple of times technically now because I, you know, also watch the commentary track and everything. But always with him, I kept thinking, like, why is this the leading guy? Like, why yeah. is like yeah. he's just yeah, he is not. He's not very good and not very charismatic. <laughs> and it's he's really I, not. I don't like him at all. He's, it's, he's hard to it's hard to get behind him as a as a hero. Which sucks there, because the best part of this movie for me was probably the first half of the movie. But like going into the second half, it like totally switches over to focusing on him. And yeah. I think it fucks the movie. <laughs> because yeah, it I doesn't. I don't like it. Like I said, it doesn't it doesn't hurt my viewing because there's so much other stuff that I like, but I totally understand that point of view because I agree that he's pretty bad in it. Was there so, was who who else was up for that role? Did we cover that? I don't, I don't know. know. Uh, it almost sounded yeah. like Toby Hooper just kind of had him in mind. I mean, from yeah. the stuff I saw, but I, he must have seen something in the guy. And I, I haven't mean, seen Helter Skelter to be honest with you. So maybe or the stunt man. So maybe he's great in those and you know, so I don't want to bash the guy too much, but I just, you know, obviously Hooper saw something in him, but man, in this movie, I got, he just, I don't know. I feel like you got to have like an extra level of something to carry what you're dealing with here. And yeah. uh, it's just, I don't know. It's just not there. I'm like, just like watching naked vampire girl being like, this, the dude you chose out of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> this is the one. <laughs> Well, I don't feel I don't feel like he was phoning phoning it in though. No, he, no, he, he was wasn't swinging for the fences in. for sure. Oh, I'm trying. sure he was. Yeah, he's yeah. trying. So after Poltergeist, Hollywood had decided that Toby Hooper kind of needed a comeback for some reason, despite the film making tons of money and being a success because of those Spielberg rumors. Like Hollywood decided, like Toby, you got to prove yourself that you're actually a very good director, you know, and that you actually could have directed something like poltergeist you kind of have to prove yourself but then when life force came out nobody really gave it a fair shake the canon you know they recut and retitled his work the film lad fucked up the effects and even the film's story was criticized by the guy who wrote the source material and it wasn't really until after the film was released on home video that it finally started gaining some momentum and it did end up gaining a cult following and, and you know, I kind of understand. It's not. It's really not hard to see why the film wasn't a major success off the bat. Um, this is a film that seems like it was always destined to be a cult film. You know, it's a very weird movie. It's a strange movie, especially one to throw as much money at as they did. And at the time that it was released, a lot of film critics seemed to really dislike evil alien movies, uh, and that was maybe due to the success of films about nice aliens, Close Encounters, E.T., Cocoon, you know, movies like this. Uh, and Hooper's film was not the only movie to suffer because of this dismissal by critics, because John Carpenter's The Thing was similarly ignored or maligned for the very same reason, because people couldn't take the idea of an evil alien. They wanted to see a cuddly alien like E.T., e. despite what Gary's wife might think of E.T. <laughs> he, he ain't cuddly to her, that's for sure. <laughs> My wife, too. She She's not a fan of E.T. Well, it's so weird. I don't get it, he's, but, he's you know, whatever. It's a... <laughs> uh, candy. It's a... Uh, it's... Man, I don't know. This this movie has a lot happening in it. There's a lot... We didn't even hit on uh, who who Hooper calls the, uh, uh, the walking shriveled. Like, all of those pup, puppet people that are in yeah. there you know like that's a weird effect i mean it's cool I, it's, it's cool but it's it's weird like somehow in the movie i mean i guess it makes sense in the movie i don't know something about it it like 
it took me off guard the first time I saw one. I was like, holy crap. Like, what is this? Because they're using puppets, and, and they could have definitely just used prosthetics or or makeup. But there's something very weird and off-putting about them using puppets to me. He didn't like feel like mm-hmm. humans with prosthetics. I, I think it's similar to, uh, what was it we talked about before that was like this? Um, oh, the... Uh, uh, the one where the they're bringing the dead people back and the, dead and buried, dead and buried, dead and buried? Yeah, yeah. yeah, where where they're like you know he's he's like I saw Hooper say this that like there were you know it's harder to there's a difference between like getting a skinny guy in prosthetics and like making it truly like a shriveled right person you know in a way that wouldn't work if it was somebody in a suit right right and uh, so he obviously saw that here too and. Uh, and it's interesting to hear him talk about it too. Like, there's like 20 people operating each one of those things and the wires where they went and how they staged it and stuff like that. It's cool. It's a cool concept. It's a cool effect and that sort of thing. But it is, I could see like people just being completely like whoever chose to go see this movie being like, what the fuck am I dealing with here? Like, <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's a lot. There's a lot going on. And, and you know, I mentioned the thing and this movie does share some other similarities with the thing thematically uh, because both of those movies, and we haven't done an episode on the thing on this, on this podcast or anything. We will inevitably Uh, the thing is like top three horror movies of all time for me. So we will be talking about the thing one day. And I know John Carpenter's Gary's probably favorite director. Would I be correct in saying that? I think you would. Um, Yeah. But both life force and the thing are about a shape-shifting evil that's passed from person to person uh, they're 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 past much like a sexually transmitted disease, and that's not me like reaching for a metaphor. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of like academic writing about this era of horror movies, uh, seen as a commentary on the then emerging AIDS epidemic. This movie almost feels like it's commenting on on both a fascination and fear of sexuality in general, uh, because. I mean, obviously, Matilda May is a in- incredibly feminine form of sexuality, and it's a it's a really interesting theme for the movie. That when you watch it that way, and when you when you watch it in that light, it really does become incredibly interesting. I think. Yeah. That no. I mean, that's a. I mean, I've watched it at you know for face value. You know, looking back and keeping that in mind makes me want to go watch the movie again. And, and it's see, not like, you know, catch all those themes. Right. And it's not that like film is being heavy handed in that symbolism. I mean, mm. ultimately, Hooper, I think when he made this, he just wanted to make a movie that's a wild, fun time. But yeah, if you can get some social commentary of some sort in there, let's do it. I mean, I, I made a joke at the beginning of the show that the movie ends in a double penetration. But I really do think that, that the way that that sword thing goes through both of their bodies is an intentional, like, metaphor for sexual penetration at some point like it's i don't think that's hooper i don't think hooper accidentally did that you know based on the context of the rest of the movie that's fair yeah he's definitely toying with the gender role thing um too because i mean he talks about that being in the book and one of the things that appealed to him like the old steve rails back being a huge pussy um but uh that is that is what they say about him. Yeah. <laughs> no. um, I, I read I, his Wikipedia. 
put it in his Wikipedia. <laughs> I, I I hate that because I mean the guy like to hear him talk like when you see him in interviews and stuff he seems like such a nice guy like he really does he seems like a, a great dude. There are lots of nice guys who aren't good actors. <laughs> I'm one of them. I mean I think I'm nice to most but, people. I was wondering like during the time of like what camera. is what is Hooper's relationship life like? But I think in '83 he got married to Karen Berger. Uh, who's an artist or something? She does costuming on the, I think this one's his first one that she does the costume design for and does it for all three canon movies, if I'm not. But mistaken. he met her before this, he didn't like meet her on, set. yeah. I think he met her right before this. So. Okay, for me, I, I asked you, you guys your opinion on the movie, but for me, one of the reasons that I was so excited to visit this era in Hobie Hooper's career is because I feel like these three movies that we're talking about really represent Hooper's vision and kind and kind of its purest, most undiluted state, at least the most since probably Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, all of the films that we've discussed from Hooper so far are, in my opinion, good or good to great uh, for various reasons. But when you see Hooper really get to kind of unleash his absolutely bonkers ideas that are bouncing around in his head with a budget to actually pull them off, you kind of get pure magic. I mean, it's really like, imagine if something like as weird as eaten alive, if Toby Hooper had been as unrestrained as he is allowed to be here because instead of having $6 million, he had $25 million to do a movie like that. Like, can you imagine what kind of insanity we would have gotten? Actually, that would have been all right. He would have probably had a better looking alligator. That's for sure. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, and, but, uh, and Hooper's, his filmography is filled with entries that really just feel completely unlike anything else. Like, it's not like every movie, like Texas Chainsaw looks very different from even Eaten Alive or this, but they don't feel like any other movie out there. Yeah, they know, yeah absolutely. You know, he, I, more than ever, I feel like he's definitely uh, a perfect exploitation filmmaker and in, 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 in the sense that he uh he does feel like he is trying to push the envelope on everything he, is, he makes yeah. and uh he he hates it if he feels restrained to like not be able to like pick something to to really go for it on i mean even in this one i, I think in the commentary if i'm not mistaken is where i heard it but they talked about that score by mancini you know that he he loved the score he was, he was happy with it but his initial idea, I want to say, was he had, he had heard, God, I wish I'd have written this down, but he had heard some other, he saw some other movie where they didn't have a score and it was like sound, just the sound effects only. And like, there was like, if, if anything, there were like weird sounds throughout. Was the it his own movie, Texas Chainsaw Massacre? <laughs> I don't think it was, it was Texas Chainsaw, but, but it was, it was really like, he, he wanted to do that in this one and, and said that they, you know, uh, the producers were like, no, let's not. Yeah, they wanted it to be this big that. blockbuster epic, I think. But he but was already movie, into, and like his words, I think, were like, we're already doing so many other things nobody else is doing. So let's yeah. let's do this. And, let's uh, just keep being weird. Yeah. yeah. He, he really leans into it. And I think this movie really is kind of the epitome of like Toby Hooper making singular movies like movies that nobody else would make or nobody else would make them in the way that he would and i love 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, I've told you guys this. It's in my top three horror movies of all time, uh, which I said also about John Carpenter's The Thing, but that's All true. horror movies are in Justin's top three horror <laughs> my movies. My top three here. <laughs> the Shining, John Carpenter's The Thing, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Those are my top three horror movies. So Those are exciting. Uh, I, I love Texas Chainsaw, but if I were ranking Toby Hooper's movies, all three movies that we're talking about in this series, especially this one in Texas Chainsaw 2, would probably be vying for that second place slot. You know, like they're fun because they're just absolutely bonkers, which I really like, you know. And Canon Films, they were, at least they started out as kind of a sleaze factory. Like they put out trash cinema, uh, audacious movies that sometimes managed to be great. Sometimes they managed to be garbage, but still make a lot of money. Uh, but it seemed like a kind of a perfect fit for Hooper, especially when you look back at stuff in his career like Eaten Alive. Like, this is a guy who did not want to do anything conventionally. He had no interest in doing anything conventionally. Even Poltergeist, his most mainstream film, has a really bizarre structure. Like, it ends and then has an entire extra act. We talked about that during that episode. Mm-hmm. But that, that is, that's very strange. That's a very strange thing for a major movie to do. Yeah, unless it's, uh, unless it's that last Lord of the Rings movie. Well, <laughs> I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> you just broke Justin's uh, brain. <laughs> I watched it happen real time right here on Zoom. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I'm very defensive of the Lord of the Rings movies. Uh, but, but Life Force is far from conventional. I think we can all agree yeah. uh, to that. I mean, the structure, we haven't talked about Dan O'Bannon and Dave, uh, Don Jacoby's script very much, but their script is kind of nuts in its structure as well. I mean, the, the plot is basically broken down into several small acts, and each of these acts has its own kind of mini protagonists, each of whom has their own encounter with the space girl. And, it's, and, and it kind of moves along that way. And then from that, Hooper builds this just weird movie that starts off in outer space, this really out there sci-fi stuff, insane production design. As we've learned from Toby Hooper, the man appreciates some good production design going all the way back to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's a big deal for him. Uh, and then the movie ends with Earth or at least London being destroyed complete with a zombie outbreak this movie starts in outer space with some weird ass shit uh, a spaceship that looks like you're walking into a giant vagina yeah it does yeah it does <laughs> uh, and then it ends with zombies running around london and london's on fire it's like that's insane that's nuts yeah. and it gets even nuttier once like carlson comes back into the story uh you know because he you know we talked about steve rails back in his performance i think at least me and Gary, I don't know where Todd fell on that, but me and Gary at least felt that he wasn't uh, very good, but he does sort of play it like a lunatic the entire time. Yeah. Uh, which, I mean, uh, he played Charlie Manson. So I guess playing a lunatic is kind of his thing, uh, even in a character that maybe shouldn't be played that way, but it does kind of hit the, the, the way he plays it kind of adds to that fever dream quality of the movie. Like it makes the movie feel even more weird because he's so out there i guess well i guess that was kind of the point with his character his his interaction with the space girl on the on the on the ship you know ended up you know he ended up connecting with her i guess you know and looking at stuff like the story of dracula that she was his uh or he he was her minion 
and yeah and and ended up you know and then shenanigans ensue but uh yeah i mean i guess that's kind of how you have to play it as man you got to rub up against her right well, yeah. Well, I mean, I do like the way that the movie plays with vampire lore. You know, like the idea that the vampire lore came from these beings who visited Earth eons eons ago. Yeah. And then kind of branched off from there. You know, mm-hmm. that's very interesting to me. Yeah, I uh, like it. the idea of you having to to kill them with this energy center. Well, that eventually evolved into a stake through the heart, and it's really. I don't know. It's. I think that's a very fun. Which I'm. I'm sure that comes from the novel. But that's a very fun play on the vampire mythology. I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a lot of fun. All of this, I think, adds up to a movie that, like, just when you think this movie, you're watching it, and you're like, this can't get any weirder. And then the movie proceeds to just get even weirder than you thought it was going to get. Like it, it does. It like it builds the whole movie. It just gets stranger and stranger. And of course, the the you know we talked we mentioned it before with the fact that Matilda May walks around naked for most of the movie. That's a weird choice that most filmmakers would not have made. They would either have her go like the Terminator route and put on clothes at the beginning, which she eventually does go the Terminator route because she she like drains that girl in the park and they're like, well, she has clothes now. Uh, but that's much, much later in the film. Yeah. Uh, or or the movie would do like the Austin Powers bit where they just like cleverly cover her up, which they kind of do with the dudes in this. Yeah. Right. But not Hooper. He's like, nah, just let it all hang out. That's like, you know, it makes more sense in the story to have this girl's tits out the whole movie. <laughs> well, well, sure. sure. That was exactly how he, he worded it in, <laughs> in his production notes or whatever. <laughs> Uh, but another uh, another example of the movie's weirdness. Uh, one of the one of the weird scenes in the movie to me, which kind of plays into that kind of sexual thematic thing that we were talking about earlier, is where Carlson is trying to psychically extract information from that nurse, the woman who's like uh, her her consciousness has been taken over by the space girl. And he finds out that she's an extreme masochist who wants him to slap her around yeah. before giving any info. I'm yeah. like, what the fuck is that? Like, that is so bizarre. And then the scene gets even weirder because the doctor guy who's with her, who's with him, the British guy, he's like, I like he's to like, watch. I'm gonna stick around. He says, after all, I'm a natural, a natural voyeur. Yeah. <laughs> what? Like, what yeah. movie are we watching? <laughs> this movie is on the cusp of porno constantly. <laughs> yes. Really? Jeez. There could definitely be a porno remake of this movie and it wouldn't change the plot very much. Right. <laughs> so I got to ask you guys, this is a tough one, I think. But if you guys were doing further viewing, if we're going to do further viewing, if you guys were going to do a double feature with this movie and something else. What what in the world do you pair with a movie that's this weird? That's not just another Toby Hooper movie. Oh, what well, I screwed it up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, the one that jumps out to me, uh, just because of its unique take on the vampire genre, is uh, from Dusk Till Dawn. I really yeah. enjoy that. Um, another movie I- with a bizarre structure too. Yeah, bizarre structure, and I I feel like while they are not the same, I feel like uh, Robert Rodriguez kind of does his own thing, and you know, he, he, I feel I feel like Toby Hooper could have been Robert Rodriguez, you know, yeah. maybe if he was born in a different era or just 
you know, if the cards had fallen a little bit differently, um, you know, Robert Rodriguez, you know, Troublemaker Studios and the Mariachi Trilogy and the whole thing. Uh, I, I feel like he did, you know, started, you know, Southern uh, United States and Texas and the whole thing. And that's kind of, you know, kind of where Toby Hooper started. There's, a, I think, I feel like there's a lot of parallels and I feel like yeah. this would make a good double feature. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. Yeah. All right, I'll blow your mind. I'm going to say this one might seem like low-hanging fruit, but species. That was going to be my pick, so I don't, nice. I don't think it is low-hanging fruit. <laughs> I think that's a very obvious choice. I think species is a very obvious choice. Well, that's what I mean. So that's the that's the low-hanging fruit. Like, all right, species is pretty close to this. Yeah. Um, and then... What got about, a, a girl walking around naked for most of the movie, so it's not that right. <laughs> what about From Beyond? Like, I feel like From Beyond's got like a weird sex. Got all the weird sex a, stuff in it for sure. Yeah, and then also, um, what was it? I just had it. Um, damn it, I just thought of something else. It was fuck, I forgot. Something else made me think. Oh, Ex Machina. Remember that movie? Like yeah, that dealing with the yeah, but but like they have the weird stoic odd female and it's more about like how the men react or yeah. you know that sort of thing yeah, and yeah, i felt yeah, like I this that. movie kind of digs into that a little bit and so it's not really the same but i feel like they're kind of tackling similar subject matter sure sci-fi with yeah. the horror element the second yeah, yeah. thing yeah i mean yeah, my, no. my main one i would have said species i mean that that seems pretty again pretty obvious but it's a very you know similar parallel with an an alien woman who anyway but if I had to go a different route, I'd say a Body Snatchers movie. Any yeah, of the Body um, Snatchers movies. Yeah. Uh, you know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, either the original Don Siegel movie or the remake or or um, the Abel Ferrara Body Snatchers, if you want to get really fucking weird. Right. You know, any of those movies kind of kind of work because of the way that she takes over other people's consciousness. So that would be my other pick aside from, from Species. I like nice. it. Nice. Hey, we made a solid list right there. That's good. Those, those were good. I thought this one was going to be tough, but we did pretty good, guys. Yeah, I'm proud of us. We're. Yeah. I feel. I feel like I got a as glowing a air of like as a whole, achievement here. <laughs> so, Life Force is Toby Hooper's biggest film as far as like scope, budget, uh, and it was a huge financial gambit by Canon Films that just didn't pay off. I mean, I, we we mentioned earlier, twenty five million dollars. You know, just a couple years earlier, Star Trek Two was. 11 million. And, and the same year, the movie that opened up and beat Life Force at the box office, Ron Howard's Cocoon, $17 million. So this, and that was a much more, I mean, that was a, a much more sure thing. That's a family friendly, you know, movie about nice old people, aliens. And, you know, it's, <laughs> as opposed to a movie, you know, throwing $25 million at a movie called the space vampires, it's going to have a naked woman walking around for 30% of the movie. Yeah, I think the only, uh, and it's all naked seniors in a retirement home in Cocoon. <laughs> and it, it did ultimately hurt the careers of everyone involved. Uh, Matilda May reportedly does not re even put this on her resume anymore. Uh, and it was one of several financial blunders that Canon made that would ultimately lead to their bankruptcy and closure by the end of the 1980s. But we're not there yet. We're still in 1985, and they're not dead yet. They're still chugging along. 
these guys at Canon Films. And Toby Hooper still has two films in his contract for Canon. And so Life Force, you know, Life Force was kind of an homage of like the quartermass stories and the British sci-fi that he had enjoyed as a kid. But his next film for Canon would be an even more blatant homage. It, it was, in fact, a remake of a science fiction film from the 1950s. It came out the very next year after Life Force. And that's the movie we're discussing on our next episode, which is 1986's Invaders from Mars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've never seen that one it. either. So yeah, so it should be fun. I mean, nice. uh, not not it's probably the least known, I think, or the least it's got the, the the smallest cult following, maybe of the three movies that we're talking about on this series, but it's definitely worth checking out because it is uh, also kind of bonkers. So <laughs> uh, so it's, it should be fun. Not the that's end our, of that's our, stock and, that's our stock and trade on Cinema Shock. Bonkers movies. Yeah. yeah. It's not the end of Toby Hooper, but at the end of Life Force, I will say, I saw this later quote from Toby Hooper where he said uh, in regards to Life Force, it was more like career murder, but I'm really proud of Life Force because no one will ever be brave enough to do a movie like that again. Even now, people watch that film with its massive budget and think, what the hell? But I knew that in time, it'd be considered cool. Quentin yeah. Tarantino told me he went to see it many times when it first came out. It's one of his favorites. And I'm just kind of happy he understood how cool it was even back then. Yeah, I, I love that quote because he's right. I mean, it has gained a big cult following, especially since it got released on. I mean, it had a, a nice uh, success on VHS. But when it hit DVD in the early 2000s, like it, that's when I first saw it. And I feel like that's when a lot of people were first able to discover this movie and then great companies like like shout factory putting out these big special editions of it have, have definitely helped as well and it does show occasionally in 70 millimeter you know in places where that's possible and i i did alongside like 2001 a space odyssey you know oh. you got stanley kubrick and then uh and then toby hooper playing alongside side by side at these 70 millimeter film festivals and i think that's sort of amazing <laughs> that's so fun. Talking about Invaders from Mars Mars next week. If you guys want to watch it along with us, as we always encourage you to do, because as you may have noticed, we get into heavy spoilers on these episodes. So we always encourage you to watch the movies along with us. You can go to cinemashock.net. You can find out, find links to where you can stream it online. Uh, I will say Invaders from Mars, you're going to probably have to stream it because the DVD or the Blu-ray from Shout Factory is out of print and very, very expensive on Bro, eBay. these next two uh, movies are. Both, both of, them. of them. Yeah, but but you can find them streaming pretty easily. So at least yeah. there's that. Uh, so we'll talk about that next week. Head to cinemashock.net. You can also find, of course, all of our episodes there. You can find links to buy our merch. I think Todd is currently winning in the contest to see whose stupid catchphrase t-shirt sells the most i don't know i i have a feeling that he has family members buying them um, <laughs> my wife definitely bought one just to annoy me and mm, so if you could uh, just buy one that says be excellent to each other uh, i think that would be great because it would help me and it's also just a good sentiment honestly to tell people to be excellent to each other so it's or by the one that actually makes a better t-shirt which is may the wings of liberty never lose a feather so that's the one <laughs> that's the one to go with but uh actually be excellent to each other's not bad but that's a well, that makes sense on a shirt like if you wear a shirt don't support justin bishop the is the real discussion here i think <laughs> <laughs> if you have a shirt this is johnny has the keys nobody's going to know what that means much like the one that i'm wearing right now 
from uh, one of my favorite t-shirt designers, Studio House Designs. It says Tom Atkins rules. I love the shirt because I love Tom Atkins. Nobody ever knows who it is. Nobody knows who Tom Atkins is. But maybe they um, ask. So that's true. That's, that's the only thing. I also thing. have a Tom Waits tattoo. And every time somebody asks me, who's that on your arm? I'm like, oh, it's Tom Waits. And there's this, just this glazed look goes over their face because they have no idea who the fuck I'm talking about. So I'm like, it's fucking Leatherface. Just get over it. <laughs> yeah. Leatherface, get over it. So, so Todd has the shirt that I... So Justin's has the best... The best, like overall, like standalone catchphrase. Todd has the one that will spark conversation with. So new Todd's is a conversation be, piece. Is that what it's we're a saying? Conversation piece. Mine looks like it's from uh, a MAGA supporter. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, Just don't buy it in red. <laughs> right. So it, it, anyway, it all works out. Uh, where can you guys be found on the internet for our listeners? I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all the socials, and if you like Star Trek, you can uh, seek out. The Computer Resume Podcast is the show where we cover the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for fans new and old. And that is at Computer Resume on all the socials. I am at This is Gary Horn. Um, I, I guess since Todd did it, I also have another podcast it's about pro wrestling. If you like pro wrestling, it's uh, This is Pro Wrestling and it's at TIPW Show. You can check it out on all those places. Side note, just a helpful hint. If yeah, I know that we know people that listen to the show that check out the movies from a library. If you happen to get Texas Chainsaw Part Two or Invaders from uh, what was it called? Invaders from Beyond. Invaders from Mars. Invaders from Mars. I thought that, but then I thought that sounded weird. Invaders from Mars. Uh, anyway, if you find them from your library, keep them. <laughs> and what whatever the cost is to replace them i guarantee you could make it it's up less than what you spend on ebay or, right. or amazon the thoughts and opinions of gary horn them. do not necessarily yeah. reflect the thoughts and opinions. just saying you can turn podcast. those things <laughs> <laughs> oh man well i'm at justin underscore bishop you can find the show at cinema underscore shock on twitter and instagram uh you can also find us on facebook like rate review until next week May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. Johnny has the keys. Make it so. Uh, it's